0: You're listening to the Redeemer London podcast. For more information, visit our website at redeemerlondon.org. Great. Student Sunday. Brilliant having you all here. I just thought I'd kick off then with a few facts, see how much we actually know about students. A couple of questions coming up here. Anybody tell me how many universities there are in the UK? 130, it's gotta be true, I read it on Wikipedia this week. How many students are there in the UK, this is post-18, I know we talked about school time, how many students were there in 2015, 2016 in the UK? Any idea, how many students there are? Two million, it's 2.28 million. Very impressive. Okay, according to the co-op, what's the number one thing that students buy? Milk. Number two is fair trade bananas. There you go. You didn't know that until you came this morning. Okay, according to Wikipedia, which university has more ducks than any other? More ducks. It's actually York. York. Apparently, there are 14 ducks every quarter of an acre, in case you're interested, in York. Yeah, one more, and I will move on to the Bible in just a moment. Which university has more marriages per student number than any other? Durham. <laughs> now people are thinking, oh, golly, why did I come to Ealing? Okay, the last one, it's not up here. What figure was student debt in 2017. Total student debt. What did it hit in 2017? A hundred billion pounds. Just because it's Student Sunday, Theresa May will announce later that your fees are not going up this year and that you will not have to repay, according to the leaked report, until you hit 25,000 pounds bad news is if you're starting student life you would have racked up 5800 pounds in interest before you finish university <laughs> welcome to church <laughs> i have 3 children uh, one has finished university the other two are at university when my children went to university my wife and i wrote them a letter We felt it was an opportunity for them, post-18, leaving home, to have something in writing from their parents just to say, actually, we really love you. We're really proud of you. In the 18 years that you've been at home, we've seen how your character's developed and we're thrilled. And for all three, we've done it as a little sort of tradition. We've also given them four things we'd like to warn you about in university life. Actually, as a student, I think there were some challenges. And this morning, I'm not going to read you one of my letters. I'm going to read you one from the Bible. Because actually, Paul was writing to this church. And it's almost like saying, I want you to know that there's going to be some pressures in life, but I love you and I'm for you, and I'd love to give you some advice. We're going to be looking at this letter in the next six weeks. It's Colossians, and I'm going to read from verse 1 of chapter 1 to verse 12. It goes like this. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God and Timothy, our brother, to God's holy people in Colossae, the faithful brothers and sisters in Christ, grace and peace to you from God, our Father. My Bible's got a heading, thanksgiving and prayer. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, When we pray for you, because we have heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and the love you have for all God's people, the faith and love that spring from the hope stored up for you in heaven, about which you've already heard in the true message of the gospel that has come to you. In the same way, the gospel is bearing fruit and growing throughout the whole world, just as it has been doing among you since the day you heard it and truly understood God's grace. You learned it from Epaphras, our dear fellow servant, who is a faithful minister of Christ on our behalf and who also told us of your love in the Spirit. For this reason, since the day we heard about you, we have not stopped praying for you. We continually ask God to fill you with the knowledge of his will through all the wisdom and understanding that the Spirit gives so that you may live a life from the dominion of darkness, and brought us into the kingdom of the Son he loves, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Holy Spirit, we believe you inspired these words. I don't want to teach from a letter I wrote to my kids. I want to hear from a letter that we believe our Father in heaven has sent to this church and to us. I pray this morning, I pray for these six weeks, I pray that you'd open our eyes, open our ears, help us to listen, help us to see, and then I pray that we would act upon what we hear for your glory. Amen. I'm going to keep it very simple this morning. I think is really an introduction. As I say, we're going to be looking at this for three weeks. The first thing I take straight from Paul's heading is this: thanksgiving. I would like to ask you a question: Are you a grateful person or a grumpy person? Are you grateful or are you grumpy? Last week, our church didn't meet in this building. In case some of you were not aware, it was the Ealing Half Marathon, and so something like seven thousand runners chasing around, and we were outside on the corner cheering people on. I got an email from the Ealing Half Marathon organizers this week saying this, I just wanted to say a massive thank you for the band that you had out for our runners on Sunday. I've had so many people say how much they loved it and how you made it to one of the reviews so far. They then sent this review. I've just cut a bit out of there. It says here, the final three miles, this is somebody reviewing the Ealing Marathon, were mostly flat. And this was a lifesaver. At around 18 kilometers, we passed the awesome drumming church group for the second time who gave me a shout out and gave me the last boost that I needed. The email continues, thank you for the support you give us and the extra boost you give our runners, especially on the return journey. Hope you can join us again on the 30th of September next year. I love it because what this person has understood is if you're grateful, we're much more likely to go back next year. Fascinating, isn't it? They suddenly say, oh, thank you so much. Hey, wouldn't you like to join us next year? I would like to offer you a tip, a very practical tip, how would you like to double your salary, your annual salary? Is there anyone interested in doubling their annual salary? There was a study done that I read about this week that says, the effect of doubling your salary can be produced by taking five minutes to be grateful every day. So actually, they said, imagine what it was like if your salary was doubled, how you might feel. This study reckons that if we take five minutes a day just to stop and be grateful, that has the impact upon our life as if we doubled our salary. So I find it fascinating that Paul was a guy who was full of gratitude. Paul says this, we always thank God. Now there are... Thirteen letters written by Paul in the New Testament. Four of them are written from prison. This is one of them. So he wasn't writing this on a beach somewhere. You know what I'm saying? Praise God, life is good. He was writing this from a prison. If you've read the book of Acts, which talks about the, the events that happened after Jesus returned and went to heaven, at the end of the book of Acts, Paul basically is in prison. And we think that it was written from there around A.D. 60 what Paul is saying is, come on, let's be a thankful people. You do not have to wait until the 23rd of November for Thanksgiving. We can be thankful to God today. We can be thankful to God today. You see, thanks is not circumstance-driven. That is what Paul was saying. What does he he give thanks for? He gives thanks for, firstly, their faith in Jesus. We have heard of your faith in Jesus Christ. You see, the Bible teaches that you are more wicked than you dare admit and more loved than you dare hope for. That's the gospel. So it's not about my circumstance. I come and give thanks. Why? Because of Jesus Christ. I was more wicked than I'd ever admit but more love that I can ever be hopeful. What else does he give thanks for? He gives thanks for their love for the believers. You love the love you have for the saints. My my wife and I, when we'd been married 20 years, uh, did a five-day trip to Rome, and I toured the Vatican. I found it absolutely fascinating. Slightly disturbing that I think it's Peter's left foot is smaller than his right foot. Because if you go in the Vatican, so many people have kissed his foot and rubbed it. Over the years, they've worn his foot away. That is not what Paul is describing when he says love for the saints. What Paul is describing is the fact that Tim and Marsha had a baby last night at quarter to eleven. And I'm convinced and know that there'll be people in this church that will be baking a meal to drop it round. Because they're expressing love for the saints. Somebody here needs a lift. Somebody will give them a lift. That's love for the saints. We have a guy, Matt, in hospital. He's been there for a month now. When I went to visit him, it was amazing how many cards were on the wall. That's love for the saints. People say, I can't even get in and visit him at this time, but I could send in my thoughts and my prayers. Paul gives thanks for their faith in Jesus, their love for their saints, and their sense of hope. He says, spring for the hope that is stored up in you. There's almost this, whoa, you know, they are believing for something. I think it might have been Joseph who said, I don't know what your week's been like. I chat to other parents whose kids are at university, you know. One parent said to me, oh, my kids are hating it. We're just thinking, could we make the one month mark? My youngest has gone and I phoned him three times this week and every time he said, I'm busy, dad, not now. Everybody has a different approach to life. You might have pain or you might have sadness. But actually, my hope is not necessarily what's happening now. My hope is one day, everything will be sorted. There will be a day, we believe. Paul was writing this. He was saying, actually, even today, look, I'm in prison, but I've got a hope for eternity. A hope that one day I will see him face to face. One day, he'll open the door and say, welcome home. Come on in. I love you. What else is Paul grateful for? He says this, all over the world, this gospel is bearing fruit. You see, what he was trying to say is ingratitude. I don't want you just to think the here and now. I don't just want you to think even Sam brought this word about our own lives. Lift up your eyes. Around the world in the last 100 years... The number of believers in sub-Sahara Africa has gone from 9 million to 516 million. I think Paul would be writing saying, come on, let's be grateful. Why is this lift up your eyes? What's God doing? They reckon in the Philippines in the last 100 years, the number of believers has grown from 8 million to 87 million. What would Paul be saying? Come on, lift up your eyes. I mean, China, I don't know how they make these numbers up, but they reckon in the last 100 years it's gone from 2 million believers to 67 million. So I think if Paul was writing to us, he said, Come on, be grateful. Not just about your circumstances, be grateful about what God is doing. The second thing that Paul tells them is I believe that we get a model of prayer. Some of you may not read the Bible often, but if you knew anything about the Bible, you may have been taught even at school about Jesus' prayer. Jesus modelled prayer to his disciples. And I think actually Paul is almost modelling prayer here. He's saying, This is how Timothy and I pray. I would just like to say that I think prayer is a little bit like water skiing. You cannot learn it in a classroom. You've got to get out, you've got to do it. You've got to put on the water skis, you've got to hang on to the boat, and you've got to go. That's what I loved about our week of prayer. People gathering. We've just finished a week of prayer and people gathering together. Who knows what God will do? Well, we know that Paul is, what's he praying about? He's praying that the people will be sensitive. Ask God to fill you with the knowledge of will. He's praying that the people would live a life worthy of the Lord. He's praying that the people would live a life acceptable to please him in every way. He's praying that the people will live a useful life, bear fruit in every good work. He's praying that the people will live a dependent life, being strengthened with all power. He's praying that the people will be brave, so that you may have great endurance. He's praying that the people will be grateful, giving thanks to the Father. He's praying that the people will live expectant lives, You're to share in the inheritance of the saints. He's praying that the people will live a united life. You're saints of the kingdom, the kingdom of the son that he loves. So as we look at this book, I think, what are you praying? What are you praying? Charles Spurgeon, who was a preacher based in London, they reckon that he brought revival to Victorian London just because he mobilized his people to pray. I love that. William Booth, who uh, sent a revival out from London literally to the ends of the earth, Uh, Wilbur Chapman wrote about his life. He said this of William Booth. He talked with God about the outcasts of London, the poor of New York, the lost of China, the great world lying in wickedness. He opened his eyes as if he was looking into the very face of Jesus. And with sobs, he prayed God's blessing. And there's almost this understanding that these guys that made a radical impact, they prayed. Paul is writing this letter and he says, I want you to be grateful and I want you to pray. But I would like to draw our attention for the rest of my preach on verse two. Verse two. The believers at Colossae In Christ. The believers at Colossae, in Christ. You see, before he starts to encourage them to pray, before he encourages them to be grateful, what he does is he reminds them of who they are. I I just kept thinking of that. You know, someone would say, where do you live? I don't say, I live at Ealing. I say, I live in Ealing. But he said, at Colossae, In Christ. So it's almost like his emphasis on in Christ is more important than where you live. He's putting that kind of emphasis on it. He's saying, actually, what's most important is, are you in Christ? Because if you're in Christ, that changes it. You could be at Colossae, you could be at Rome, or at Ephesus, or wherever it was. Are you in Christ? I would like to suggest that as we look at this, I'm going to ask you, if you've got time this week, read the book of Colossians. you get much more out of the preachers for the next six weeks. But if you read through it, you will pick out that this is a major theme of the whole book. Are you in Christ? In chapter 1, verse 14, it says, in whom we have redemption. We read that there. Chapter 1, verse 19, in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. It's all in him. In one, chapter one, verse twenty-two, we are reconciled in His body of flesh. That's how it worked. In chapter two and verse three, it says, "In whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge." Chapter two, verse six, we continue to live in Him. In chapter two, verse seven, we're rooted and built up in Him. Chapter 2, verse 9, in him, all the fullness of deity dwelleth bodily. Chapter 2, verse 10, you've been filled in him. In chapter 2, verse 11, it says, you were circumcised in him. In chapter 2, verse 12, it says, in him, you were raised up. In chapter 4, verse 17, it says, fellow servant in the Lord. Chapter 4, verse 17, the ministry you've received in the Lord. Now, you think, Pete, you've gone overboard the reality is the amount of verses I read from that one book are proportionate to the amount that Paul uses right throughout the Bible. So they reckon he wrote 13 books, but he used this phrase 160 times. So if you were to look right across here, you would have that kind of approach. You see, Paul says this. Activity is determined by Identity. Activities determined by identity. You see, Paul did not, preach, did not plant this church. We actually think Epaphras was called Epaphrodite, and we think that actually he was a pagan from Ephesus. Paul, we know, spent about three years in Ephesus. So when he was there, this student had learned from him and then gone back to Colossae, they think, and then started the church. We are not aware that Paul ever visited the church. Didn't plant it, didn't visit it. But we're aware the church has got into trouble. And if you want to do a bit of studying around in the Bible, you will understand that Colossians was actually written to try and sort out heresy. So what was the heresy? Well, some people think it was ceremonialism. Basically, there was lots of strict rules. Look, if you're a Christian, you don't drink this and you do drink that. If you're a Christian, you must eat certain foods. You must get circumcised. It's all to do with ceremony. Other people think he was writing about asceticism. Asceticism is you get rid of everything nice and you just live a poor life. Because it says do not handle, do not taste, do not touch in chapter 2. Some people think from chapter 2 it was to do with angel worship. And they would got caught up in cookie supernatural stuff. Other people think it was just there was a depreciation of the value of Christ. And we'll be looking next week at how Paul answers that. Some people think he was answering Gnosticism. Gnosticism was a a way where you divided the spirit and the physical. The physical, it didn't matter, but the spiritual was really important. And so some people say he was writing to try and answer that. Other people say that he was answering the reliance on human wisdom and tradition. Do you know what I think? I haven't got a clue. And I'm not really sure it matters. What we do know is that he was opposing heresy, but he didn't focus on the heresy. He focused on who they were in Christ. The danger is with religion, we focus on the behavior. What, you did that? You turned up then? You thought that? Paul is confronting people that it's not gone well. But he doesn't say don't, he's actually saying, before anything else, this is who you are in Christ. And that changes everything. I believe that this book would definitely help students, and whether you're at university or not, I think we're all studying at the University of Life. You see, I think this book would really help us because we all face the two pressures that students do. Number one, the high pressure. To conform. And in the book of Colossians, he's challenging a people that basically are conforming to stuff that they didn't first hear, but they're obviously behaving in a certain way because others were. And I think in our social media saturated society, there's always a challenge for us to conform in the way that we behave. And so I believe the book of Colossians will help us as we look at this. I think the other one, which is maybe more contentious, is that actually. Paul is writing about absolute truth in an age of relativism. The danger is even today that we treat doctrines like opinions rather than the word of God. And what he does in this book is he says, I want to bring you back to the truth. Hey, I'm not sure I like that. Come back next week and we can talk more about it. I think that there's a challenge here. What Paul is basically writing in Colossians is this. You've turned the gospel into Jesus plus getting circumcised, plus not getting, plus. And actually what the Bible says is the gospel is Jesus. And I want to bring you back to Jesus. He reminds them that they are in Christ In Christ means this, you are totally reorientated towards him and it's no longer about you. You see, I think sometimes we've forgotten this. In Christ means I've repented. Repented means I've turned away from my sin, but I've not turned to myself, I've turned to God. And so he was saying that in Christ you turned away from your own thing, you've turned towards God. Now that you are in him, this changes everything. We had the privilege, I believe, as a church, of going through a course called Freedom in Christ some years ago. It's funny, isn't it? There's something that's always stuck with me. One of the things that's always stuck with me is the SAS. Obviously, we think of them as the elite military of this country. But when you did Freedom in Christ, they started out with SAS. Security, acceptance, and significance. And it all comes from who you are in Christ, not what you do. I think we need this as students. I think we need it in life. One of my kids got an E in French. And I said I was so proud. He said, really? (laughs) That's given away. It's down to two now, isn't it? I said, the reality is you've got a one for your classroom effort. You've got a one for your homework effort. And you've got a one for your coursework. You couldn't have tried any harder. But as a parent, see, I was always saying, oh, how would you do this? I tell you, when it comes to God, you don't even have to do that. You get a one because you're in Christ. And you think, oh, I've not tried. You you get it. And so I'm going to ask us each to say this out. I've put some verses up here which are in him. The first one is significant if we've got that here. Sorry, a little bit small here. I just want you to say, I may approach God with freedom and confidence. Let's say that. Next one. I have been chosen. So, where's your significance? Your significance is in Him. How do you know that you're accepted? Well, I've got two verses on that one as well. I have been bought with a price, I belong to God. Ephesians 1 says this. I have been adopted as God's child. That's amazing, isn't it? How can you be secure? Because Romans 8 and verse 1 says this, I am free forever from condemnation. And 2 Timothy 1 verse 7 says this, I have not been given a spirit of fear, but power and love. I tell you, I, I believe this, this letter is just going to transform us. I hope my kids keep the letter that Nikki and I crafted for them, thought about it, prayed over them. But I have no idea. But I know this letter has been preserved. Because actually, I believe that God still wants to speak to us now. What could you take away from this one? You could take away first and foremost, actually, I want to be more grateful. Fantastic! You could take away something. God, I'm going to pray. Prayer changes things. So I just say that again, prayer changes things. It's phenomenal. Or you can take away that in Him, in Him, <laughs> in Him, there's total transformation. Next week we're going to be looking at the amazing passage that comes straight on the back of this but I'm not allowed to preach two sermons in one go. So I'm going to pray and then I'm going to hand back to these guys. Father, I want to thank you for the amazing truth in this letter. We know that Paul was scribing it with Timothy, but honestly, we believe that you're writing to us. Lord, as we look at this over the next six weeks, we're asking that, yeah, we would be more grateful. We wouldn't succumb To advertising that always tells us we need something new and better and shinier. I pray that we would be more prayerful. We don't just attend a lecture and think, oh, I can make my own notes. I pray we start every day by expressing our love for you and our dependence upon you in prayer. But I pray above it all that we go forward thinking, God, if we're believers, we are in Christ. And my whole activity is shaped by my identity. I can be more forgiving, more gracious, more loving, not because I'm trying harder, but I'm in Christ and it totally transforms me. We thank you for that, in Jesus' name, amen.